Prelude in D minor by Chopin. Grace and peace to you in the name of Christ. As we gather, I invite you to take about three deep breaths that you might become more fully aware of the Spirit's presence within and among you. Friends, let us now worship in beloved community. i 
Good morning. Would you please join me in our call to worship? Come and seek the God in whom you can take refuge. We offer our gratitude and our pleas for intercession. Come and recognize the universal one. We offer ourselves to the way of Christ. Come and rest in the spirit. We offer our trust, our hope, and our strength. welcome you to worship with us this morning. I am so glad you have found us, whether you are watching on Facebook or YouTube or some other way. It is good to be present with you this morning. If this is your first time joining a Westminster worship service, a special welcome to you. It is good to be with you virtually today. I invite us to join together in our community prayer. Let us pray. Open the heavens, that we might recognize your presence, O Christ. Reveal yourself and embolden us in our faith. Melt away our fears and concerns and soften our hearts toward our enemies. Forgive us for gladly claiming our own second chances, but denying them to others. Ground us in our gratitude for the grace you have bestowed upon us. Amen. Let's join together now in a time of quiet.
Friends, hear the good news. The love and grace of our God is abundant and unconditional. Through Jesus Christ, we have been forgiven. We have been set free. We have been made new. Thanks be to God. Amen. Now I invite the children who are worshiping with us this morning to now join Jeff for our time of discovery. Good morning. Good morning. And I got to bring you over here to sit, my dear superheroes. Sit here. And I know you know a lot about these superheroes right here, these pretend superheroes. I mean, you are our real superheroes. I've been telling people all week again that you know who has a rough job are the kids because they don't get their friends anymore. They don't get to play games at school. They don't have their sports anymore, all the silly things that happen at lunch but they still have to do all their work. And that is tough. And I know some of you are not just doing your work, but you're also helping out at home. You're taking care of people. You are real superheroes. But for my pretend superheroes, do you know who this is? This one right here. Do you know who this one is? Now, how do you know that super, uh, <laughs> it's not Superman. How do you know this is Spider-Man? How do you know? Is it because it, he's got the red and the blue and the spider there? And do you know, let me, Spider-Man's pretty popular though. Do you know who this is? That's right, it's Iron Man. And how do you know it's Iron Man? Do you know it's Iron Man because it looks like his outfit is made out of iron? Do you know it's Iron Man because he's red? How do you know that's Iron Man? Iron Man, please sit down. And do you know who this is? Maybe not everyone knows that this is Black Widow, but how would you know it's Black Widow? Is it because of her outfit and her hair? Or do you know who this one is? No, it's not me. Although it, it looks a lot like me, doesn't it? If only I had a beard. This is Thor. Uh, and Thor, maybe not everyone knows, but this is Thor. How do you know it's Thor? Maybe it's because he's super tall and he's got these big muscles and the long blonde hair. Well, did you know, maybe you know that that, that you know they are who they are because you've seen their movies and their shows, you've read their books. You might even know their voices. You know who they are, but you know, sometimes the bad guys, they have an imposter. And then you have to figure out who's the real Spider-Man. How are you gonna know? They're two Spideys. Who's the real one and how would you know? You know what an imposter is? An imposter is really just somebody that's not the real thing. And Jesus told a story about imposters one time. He said, you know, there are going to be lots of voices telling us where to go or what to do. And Jesus says, I have a voice too. And how are we going to know what Jesus's voice sounds like? He tells us. And then what will we do when we hear Jesus's voice? 
it's kind of like that game Marco Polo. You ever play that in the pool where maybe Captain America is yelling, Polo, is yelling Marco and Polo to Spidey and they're going Marco and everyone else is making all the noise and Spider-Man's swimming and he's trying to figure out where Captain America is. It's kind of like that. And so how will we know what Jesus's voice sounds like? Because these people, these heroes aren't real. But how are we going to hear the real voice of Jesus? And how will we know what to do when we hear it? Well, fortunately, there, if you go to WPC Tiburon on YouTube, you will see a video that explains that so well and to help us explore even more of that. And maybe even watch it with your family, watch it with your parents, or tell them about it. Ask them what they think. But this time, before you go, I don't think you should leave just yet, because I want you to see. Uh, how some of my friends are doing, some of our friends, who some of them have helped in your classes, my friends Katie and Kyle and Peter and Evelyn, and they actually have a special guest like Ms. Karen did last week. So please enjoy this uh, hello from the Sayers family. Hi, this is the Sayers family sheltered in place in Green Ray. We love having the Georges up the hill from us. Not to be outdone by the Halseys and their interspecies pet diversity, we want to introduce you to Gobi. She's our desert tortoise and she is a professional at sheltering in place. Katie has been busy with her pop-up barbershop cutting the hair of both dad, me, mom, and Cranley. We are really happy to be together, but Kyle is off to Boston on Saturday to start his summer internship. So prayers for Kyle and his anxious mum. We miss you all. Bye. As we move to our time of joys and concerns, as always, we invite you to share your prayers with us. Some of you email us during the week. Some of you have typed your joys and concerns into the comments and know that we are in prayer with you and for you throughout the week. Today is Mother's Day, so certainly we are in prayer for those of you who are celebrating this Mother's Day today. And if this is a day that is difficult for you, we are also in prayer for you, as this can be a day that brings up many emotions for people. So again, feel free to add your joys and concerns to the comments, to an email, and let us be in prayer together. As we share this prayer together, there'll be a few times of quiet, and you are invited simply to add your prayers in the times of quiet. So let us be in prayer together. God of grace and light, we celebrate the gifts of your spirit. You fill us with strength and hope, and you invite us to share in the challenges and joys of discipleship. So hear us now as together we offer our prayers, our prayers for our homes, places where we have spent so much time lately. May our homes be places where the happy find peace, where the sad find comfort, where the hungry find food, where the weary find rest. Hear us now, O oh God, as we pray for our homes and our families. Loving God, we pray for our community. 
May our community be a place where the isolated find friendship, the marginalized find welcome, and the unloved find acceptance. Hear now our prayers for our community. Oh God, we pray for our nation and our world. We pray for those entrusted with the care of our society. We pray for those whose deaths have been in the news this week due to senseless violence. And for the many more who did not make the news. Loving God, show us the way to relationships of grace and understanding. May generosity of heart and mind and soul always prevail. Hear now our prayers for our nation and our world. And hear us now, O oh God, as we lift our voices together, praying the prayer your Son taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. As I was contemplating the teaching theme for this week, I was reminded of the Charles Wesley hymn, Oh, for a heart to praise my God. One of the reasons this has been an enduring hymn of the faith for more than two centuries is its adaptability to be sung to many different tunes. I found, I think, at least four, maybe more, um, tunes on hymnary.org when I was researching this. This particular setting is written as a solo performance by Edwin T. Childs. Throne where 
scripture reading of the day is from the book of Psalms, chapter 31. In you, O Lord, I seek refuge. Do not let me ever be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. You are indeed my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Take me out of the net that is hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and persecutors. Let your face shine upon your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. This is holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. And the second scripture reading comes from the book of Acts, the seventh chapter, verses 55 to 60. Listen for what the Spirit is saying to us this morning. For context, this is Stephen speaking. It's in the midst of his persecution for following Jesus. And here he speaks of the risen Jesus. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God in Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Humanity standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears, and with a loud shout all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him, and the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he died. This too, my friends, is holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. Well, today, something a little different. Rather than simply one of us talking or sharing, Bethany and I will be having a dialogue about some of the themes raised in this scripture passage and in uh, our common life together. So with that, an opening question for Bethany. What does it mean to commend one's spirit to God. We heard that line in the psalm, but if you're thinking to yourself, gosh, that line seems awfully familiar, 
I would guess that most of us are probably familiar with that line um, from Jesus. His very last words on the cross before he died, according to Luke's gospel, were, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And I find it interesting that we heard similar language from Stephen in the Acts passage right before he dies. He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And I do think it's a meaningful image that after we hold our spirits in our human bodies during our earthly lives, we offer our spirits back to God when we die. You know, our, our spirits truly are never apart from God. I think about that line from Paul that neither death nor life will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But I think we miss something important if we relegate this statement about commending our spirits to God, if we only think about that at the end of our earthly lives. So I've been thinking about what might it mean to commend our spirit to God here and now, you know, as we are living our earthly lives. And so that brings me back to the psalm that we just heard. And when the psalmist says that he is commending his spirit to God, he's not at the end of his life. We assume he's right in the prime of his life. And what he's realizing in this psalm is that it is God who is his refuge. It is God who is his rock and his fortress. So as I read this psalm, I read it as him committing his spirit to God as an acknowledgement that God has redeemed him, God loves him abundantly, and that he truly can trust God always. So I think when we commend our spirit to God, either in death or in life, it's really something of a release. You know, in death, we are releasing spirit from our human bodies into eternal life. And in life, really, we are releasing ourselves from having to journey through this life alone. You know, we are committing to walking through life with God, which can be wonderfully freeing. You know, we don't have to face life's challenges by ourselves. We don't have to be strong and take courage alone. You know, in commending our spirit to God, we open our hearts and our souls to receive God's grace and God's love. But I realize there's also a challenging aspect to commending our spirits to God. For in doing so, it will likely move us outside of our comfort zones because it commits us to following God's call, even when that call is unexpected or unfamiliar. And I have to say that's a hard one for me, to release some of the control of my life and to be willing and open to journeying with God wherever that may lead. It's still a work in progress for me. Now, I realized throughout this, I've, I've used the word release several times. Um, I think another word I maybe could have used is surrender. I think there is an element of surrender in both of the passages that we heard this morning. So, Rob, I'm going to come back to you and wonder about this concept of surrender. Now, is it a sign of strength or of weakness? Would you talk a little bit about that? I think if I were to answer that question simply, I suppose I would say that surrender is a sign of strength, 
when it serves the greater good. Surrender becomes an act of weakness when it gives up on offering the good, when it betrays one's integrity, or when it abandons the other to acts of injustice or violence or harm. There's no doubt that the concept of surrender or submission is at the heart of so many religious traditions, uh, including our own. I mean, I think of that moment that, that you just described of Jesus on the cross giving up his spirit. And, and even if you look to the days just prior, and there is Jesus in the garden, and, and he cries out to God saying, um, take this cup from me. I, I don't want this fate. But right following that, Jesus says, but not my will, your will. It's an act of surrender. Our, our Buddhist friends, I think, have something to teach us about this. For in part, they recognize that the source of suffering is our attachment to what is not, to what we do not have, for a way which isn't uh, so. And our clinging for that, our longing for that, is a source of suffering. And so, though they may not use these words, it's surrendering to the reality that is, or acknowledging it, and on some level accepting it. That is how we become released from our suffering. You may well know that the word Islam itself means to submit, to submit to the will of God. And so we know that that is an important aspect of our faith. But there's a second question that is raised by this, and that is when is surrender faithful and when is it giving license for exploitation or abuse? Because it's easy for one to decide to submit to the reality of the moment or to give in to what one believes is the leading of God, even if it leads to one's own suffering. But it's very different to impose that request on another, particularly if you are someone who has more advantage or power than that other. Should Ahmad Arbery, for example, should his family, this man who was gunned down while jogging, black man, when we've seen white men carry guns in the face of officials and have no recourse, should that family surrender to this reality? Submit and say, well, this is the reality that is, and I should not long for something else. I saw earlier today, just today, comments, uh, a, a clip of the activist James Baldwin, and going through a litany of, uh, of time that his family and his ancestors have given up uh, while we make so-called progress. How long do we expect others to submit to surrender before a new way comes. And that's why at the heart of it, we can go back to Christ and see that it's a matter of discernment. Because Jesus does not model for us submitting to every injustice. What Jesus models for us is submitting to the will of God. And you can't overlook that difference. Yes, he is offered up on an unjust altar. He gives in, it seems, to forces that are not working for good. But we see in his resurrection a greater plan at work. And if anything, his model for us is to stand up for and with those 
who face injustice. If anything, his sacrifice on an altar of injustice was to end all such sacrifices. And so we need not heed this invitation to surrender to that which is harmful, hurtful, or wrong. Now, having said that, it's amazing to see how Stephen responds to this incredible injustice imposed on him, not imposed on others, but imposed on him. And in the face of that, he says uh, uh, not to hold the sin against his killers. So Bethany, back to you, why not? Why not hold the sin against them? Why not, if not for vengeance, as tempting as that may be, for justice, for accountability? Why not hold the sin against the evildoer? I think the heart of this question is truly about forgiveness. And to give forgiveness the time it deserves, I think we should do a whole sermon series on it. So we certainly can't get into everything, but I do want to say a couple of things. Um, you know, as your question notes, forgiveness is complicated and it's hard. And sometimes it's even seemingly unfair. You know, why should we forgive Stephen's killers when they might simply abuse someone else? You know, often when I think of forgiveness, one of the stories that comes to my mind is the story of the prodigal son. You know, the story about a younger son demanding his inheritance, then messing everything up horribly, and then being unconditionally forgiven by his father. And his older brother, who has done nothing wrong, stews in envy when he sees all of this. Whenever I tell that story, I can't blame him. I can't blame the older son for wondering, what, what is this forgiveness all about for my younger brother who is messed up so badly? Now, forgiveness is complicated, and it often brings up more questions than answers. But for me, at its core, and I think this is why Stephen perhaps uttered those final words, is that forgiveness, not holding one's sin against them, is really about being a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus taught over and over again about the importance of forgiveness. You know, he's the one that told the prodigal son's story. In Luke's gospel, when Jesus is on the cross, before he commends his spirit to God, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. So in the last moments of Stephen's life, when he does not hold the sin against his killers, he's doing his best to follow Jesus. He is offering forgiveness. And that's what we are called to do as well. Now I realize there are times when forgiveness seems difficult, if not impossible. And I'm reminded by something I read recently by a Methodist pastor, the Reverend Timothy Hare. And he said, forgiveness is not an act of individual heroism. It is rather an act of God. Now, so perhaps what we might do, says Hare, is look upon our enemies through the loving eyes of God and find ourselves more deeply aligned with God's heart. Yes, forgiveness can be complicated. And Rob, really, some of what you were just saying, we all move at for, about forgiveness at our own rates. 
we certainly cannot impose our thoughts about forgiveness on someone else's situation. In fact, sometimes there are relationships from which we just need to remove ourselves for our own health and safety. And forgiveness in those situations will look very different from forgiveness in other situations. But it sure helps me to remember that it is not about my individual heroism. It's about God. And in that way, forgiveness can be a beautiful reminder of God's amazing grace and abundant love. Now, we've talked a lot about Stephen in this passage, and truly the passage does focus on Stephen, but Saul, who was later named Paul, does make an appearance in this passage. And whenever I hear about Saul or Paul, I can't help but think about his own conversion experience. So, Rob, back to you. I'm wondering if you'd talk just a little bit about what conversion means for you. Sure. In fact, if you look at the very next line in the passage after the selection we read, this is what it says. And Saul approved of their killing him. Saul, uh, at whose feet they laid coats. It makes me think of Palm Sunday. They're doing this at the feet of Saul. And as Bethany just mentioned, Saul is the one who becomes Paul, perhaps the greatest apostle of the faith. I've got a colleague who loves to say that Paul is the one who made Jesus Christ, because Paul was the one who extended the missionary beyond the Jewish people to the Gentile world. And so Paul perhaps more than any earthly figure, is responsible for the Christian faith. And that man watched and approved and oversaw this killing of Stephen who followed Christ. Now, what do we do with that? Well, Bethany actually got us part of the way there just a moment ago. I wonder if Paul, then Saul, overheard Stephen and his words of commendation and his words of forgiveness. I wonder if whether he heard that or not, that moment became a seed for his own conversion. Have you ever examined your own behavior and, and found it so destructive to others or maybe yourself, that it's at the very bottom that you recognize how far from the path you strayed. And maybe, just maybe, it is in this moment when Paul is participating in the most heinous of acts, the murder of an innocent person, that he sees the error of his ways and his heart starts to break. Maybe he doesn't even know it, but the conversion has begun. It's an interesting thing about Paul's conversion. You, you may know the story well, but even if you're not very familiar with the Bible, he's walking on the road and he's blinded by a light and he's changed forever. Well, that's how it's told in the book of Acts. But you know, Paul never describes it that way himself in his letters, the writings that were straight from his hand. And so, while I have known people who've had epiphanies, stark changes that have made them rethink everything. For many of us, and for much of the time, conversion isn't only a sudden 
moment. It's a gradual thing. Rather than a, a blinding momentary light, it's more like a sunrise where the light changes and is gradual, but it's imperceptible to the eye. And then all of a sudden, the whole sky is lit. The passage gives hope because it says to us, even those of us engaged in the worst, in the worst imaginable crimes are not beyond redemption. There is hope for us all. And it's hope for those of us who don't get the blinding road moment, but instead can commit ourselves to what is in fact a discipline, not just a gift, the slow, incremental change towards a more loving and compassionate soul. Conversion is something we have to practice. Just as, the, just as uh, we're not uh, born again once, I don't believe, but we should be born again every day. My hope and prayer for the seeker is that she and he and they are converted anew every day. Every day. Now, I would say, as much as it's a discipline and a choice and a practice, it's not something we can do alone, or certainly not easily alone, that we need strength beyond us for that, or deep within us. Christians talk about the Holy Spirit that way often. But I want to know uh, from you, Bethany, how, how do you think the Spirit actually intercedes? How does the Spirit give us strength, whether for conversion or any of the acts of faith that require such courage and strength? You know, I sometimes feel like a broken record because I talk very frequently about the interconnectedness of spirit and of breath, but that's such an important part of my own faith journey. There's so many times throughout each and every day, I simply stop and I breathe and I remember that spirit is flowing through me always. And I think often it can be as simple as that. Now, I will admit that I have not dealt particularly well with this shelter in place time. The last couple of weeks have especially been a struggle for me. Uh, for someone who is a bit of a planner, like I am, all of the unknowns of this time are really wearing on me. And I have found myself incredibly anxious. And what has calmed me and grounded me during these anxious times has been spirit. You know, when I remember to breathe, when I remember my connectedness to spirit and divine, then I can carry on. When I don't remember that, things can get a little dicey. You just ask the two people that have been living with me for the last several weeks. So when I'm grounded and when I'm centered in spirit, I, that is when I'm reminded of what the psalmist wrote that we heard today. You know, God is a rock of refuge for us. God is a strong fortress. And that is what gives me strength. I'm also inspired by the confidence and the trust that the psalmist shows in God. So Rob, and this should probably be our last question. I could do this all day, but this should probably be our last question. What does trusting God look like in your life? Well, I was hoping you might wrap it up there because this is such a hard one. Uh, it's, it's so um, ripe for misstep, uh, but I'll be brief. Um, I don't know is the first answer. 
I mean, I don't entirely know, but let me tell you what I think it's not first. Trusting in God does not mean that you don't have to care about what you do or how you act or who you might impact because God will just fix it. I think that relinquishes a responsibility as people of faith to show up to the world and in the world in a particular way, to love our neighbors as ourselves. I also don't think that it means assuming because you trust God that everything will be painless and that you will never experience difficulty. You may have had a moment in your life where you had that kind of childlike faith, but if you have or had, um, my guess is you experienced a moment where that came apart because that kind of faith will always let you down. And what's Scary about that is some people, when that crumbles away, have nothing left because they've built their entire understanding of God upon that. But it will always fail you. I think at least in part what trusting God is, is recognizing the inherent value of doing what is good and faithful and just aside from any external reward you'll be given. I mean, I don't think taking Christ into your heart is just about a sweet feeling. I think it's about internalizing an affirmation of living with integrity, come what may. And that's why it's ultimately a question of discernment, which we said at the outset, of learning to recognize what is truly God's will and what is not. It's not only a personal project, it's a communal project, to discern what is good and helpful and just and righteous and appropriate and acceptable and pleasing. And that's why, for me, the path to faithfulness must run through in some form or another contemplation. Now, for some, that seems an odd journey. They want to be more involved in action and doing things, and I do too, but it is through contemplation, which is the companion of justice, of action. It is contemplation that is the rudder of right action. Because contemplation is what puts us in touch with that, that shows us what is good and just and right and faithful. Contemplation puts us in touch with the wellspring of wisdom, of courage, of strength deeper than we could ever imagine that is available to us. And part of what is sinister about our age and our obsession with busyness is by giving ourselves over to a system that only measures us based on output and productivity, that we don't invest in the contemplative and the reflective, and therefore we too know not what we do. I think busyness is how the devil keeps us from being faithful. Now, I know not all of us have the luxury of being slow during this time. For many of us, this is a faster and busier and more frenetic time. But perhaps for all of us, in one way or the another, or another, what the pandemic can teach us is the necessity of contemplation that we might better discern 
what it means to act out of good faith. Well, this is the end of our dialogue, but our hope is it's not the end of yours. You can do this just as we did with those around you, with those uh, others in your life, even in a weird way with yourself. This is the word of life forever and ever, so engage it. Amen. As Rob mentioned right at the end of our dialogue, that it really is our hope that what we were doing is modeling for you something that you may do in these times when it might be a little more challenging to stay connected. Give someone a call, uh, you know, have a, have a discussion about some of these questions or others that may be on your mind. You know, it's so important for us to stay connected during this time. Um, speaking of which, we will have a few opportunities next week for connection over Zoom. Um, if you haven't joined in our Tuesday afternoon movie group at 2.30, you're welcome to do that. Uh, our Wednesday morning class at 9.30 is always available for people to join in. Uh, we also, I think you have probably heard by now, have been collecting bag lunches every Wednesday morning. Some of them go to Sausalito Presbyterian Church to support our hot lunch program. Some of them go to St. Vincent de Paul. Uh, but if you'd like to participate with just one lunch or maybe more, you can be in touch with Jeff Schenkel or Jeff Healy for more information about that. And now I invite us to join together in our closing hymn. Our closing hymn is How Firm a Foundation, a hymn that has assured believers for two centuries of the faithfulness of Christ and the certainty of hope. Over the course of five verses, the text powerfully moves from Old Testament references to the faithfulness of God to the certainty of the faithfulness of Christ. Oh
now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, who is father and mother of us all, and the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit be with you this day, be with you every day. Amen.